Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. In this week's episode, the first of a two-part series, I'm honored to share a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Robert Thurman. The New York Times calls Professor Thurman the leading American expert on Tibetan Buddhism. Professor Thurman is an intimate student of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he was one of the first Westerners to become an ordained Tibetan monk in India in 1962 before returning to the United States to relinquish his monk's robes and become the Buddhist scholar and author that he's known as today. Dr. Thurman is an ardent supporter of the Tibetan cause, having founded Tibet House in New York City, dedicated to the preservation of Tibetan civilization. Dr. Thurman is also a prolific author of dozens of books, including The Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was my own personal introduction to Buddhism, Essential Tibetan Buddhism, Inner Revolution, and, most recently, co-authored with Sharon Salzberg, Love Your Enemies. In our conversation, Dr. Thurman answered ten questions for me, touching on some of his most profound points, from the nature of time, to what is enlightenment, to why there's no evidence for nothing. He talked about what a psychonaut is, and the importance of skepticism in Buddhism and in science. Please enjoy this wonderful conversation with one of the world's greatest minds. Dr. Thurman, it's an honor to have a chance to speak to you today. I first learned about Tibetan Buddhism through the Tibetan Book of the Dead when I was grappling with the death of somebody close to me. So first of all, thank you for starting me on the Buddhist path back then. And second of all, thank you for your time today. Most welcome, most welcome. My pleasure. So we have 10 questions for you today, and I really hope we have time for them all. I'm going to get started talking a little bit about our audience. Our audience for the podcast is primarily modern skeptics who are curious about the benefits of Buddhist meditation. So I'm wondering if you can share the role skepticism has played in your life as you explored Buddhism, first as a monk and later as an academic scholar and a teacher of Buddhism. Well, I was always skeptical. I never believed in God, although I went to a Presbyterian church intermittently. My parents were not terribly church-going, but they weren't radical atheists either, and sort of atheists. My mother thought Shakespeare was God. (laughs) (laughs) And my father, he liked mystics, like Francis of Assisi and things like that. So anyway, I liked Jesus, but I didn't like God thought he was too grumpy and uh, gave Jesus a wrong deal. And actually, Buddhism taught me to really like Christianity, actually, which I felt I was rebelling against early on. So skepticism, I'm all 100% for it. And one reason I really liked Buddhism when I encountered it was the teachings of Nagarjuna. And Nagarjuna is a professional skeptic, in fact, a better skeptic than almost anyone you can think of. So I really, really liked his writings and his teachings. 
and he teaches you to train skepticism, in other words, what's called critical or analytic meditation, which is the original meaning of vipassana or vipassana. Vipassana is not just sitting quietly. Vipassana is using your mind critically to penetrate appearances and discover their falsity and so forth. And so it is cultivating a meditation of skepticism, in fact, precisely. Also, you said the audience is primarily skeptic. So I would say philosopher, scientist types, Westerners, who are not skeptical enough nearly about their dogmatic materialism mm -hmm. from our point of view. But anyway, we welcome them for skeptical meditation. Some kinds of meditation, like simply one-pointed types and things, which are useful and important, but they are not the primary one in Buddhism. And they are also like tranquilizing meditations. You know, one-pointed meditations have side effects also, and you have to be cautious about them. And one of their main side effects is a kind of palliative thing where a kind of restless anxiety that makes you want to dig deeper and know reality can be palliated but not cured by just suppressing your thinking through one-pointedness. One-pointedness, you can learn to suppress your own thinking and worry and so on, and that in a way can be good. Blood pressure, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction, all that sort of thing is really good. But for scientific or philosophical penetrating the surface misconceived appearances of reality to discover deeper nature of reality, that tranquilizing will dull your edge in being able to do that and uh, make it seem too tiresome to analyze something and too tiresome to even use language because of knowing that it's dualistic, why bother to use it? But actually the Buddhist trick is you have to use the dualistic language to go beyond it. You can't just discard it because the underlying structure of dualistic perceptual habits remain in your mind whether you suppress the manifestation or not. So that's a really important thing. And therefore we welcome the skeptical thinkers and the Dalai Lama himself, in fact, he considers skeptical, humanistic uh, secularism to be like a world religion with one and a half billion followers, about one-fifth of the world's population, pretty much the elite of the population. So one of the primary goals of the way he tries to wield Buddhist philosophical, critical philosophy, Buddhist analytic meditation, the more important kind, is to engage with those people to try to get them to be a bit more skeptical on their materialism, which he considers too dogmatic. And they need to really be more questioning about things like, oh yeah, we got the world, oh, our standard model is so cool. Well, of course, 97% dark matter and energy, but <laughs> we're onto it, but we haven't seen it yet. <laughs> 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 whatever, you know, the whole resistance to the Copenhagen Declaration that you can't pin it down at the super micro level because your observation interferes with it and therefore there's no such thing as absolute objectivity. And so therefore you have to really cope subjectively with your subjectivity and critically with your subjectivity. That's what you wield as a scientist and as a human being. So denying that there's any such thing or, or just putting an arbitrary label on it that it's an illusion made by, as an epiphenomenon of the brain is really too simplistic for critical, high-tech, super mm. smart scientific thinkers. And they really need to get over it and start using their analysis going both ways. To, of course, keep analyzing and using even materialistic reductionism to get a finer and a finer and a finer apprehension of material processes and energy processes. But then if you shift back through energy to awareness, 
then you go, you equally go do mentalistic reductionism in some contexts, and you'd be more flexible in your modeling rather than dogmatic if you want to be truly empirical scientists, we feel. So therefore, we, we couch this in terms, in Buddhist uh, science and philosophy, we couch it in terms of the meeting of what the Indians called, not just the Buddhists, but all of the Indian uh, thinkers and scientists called inner science as connected with outer science, so that they're all work together rather than just canceling inner science and trying to consider even the inner as if it were material. That's wonderful. So analytical meditation in this Nalanda tradition promotes this skeptical approach. Oh, not just the Nalanda tradition, in the Pali tradition as well, mm -hmm. because that's what vipassana means. Pasana means to see, seeing, it's a gerund, and vi means analytically or dividingly, mm. you know, the vi prefix. So it's vipassana, mm -hmm. it's not just seeing one-pointedly, it's seeing critically dividing the real from the unreal, that's the idea. In that first book I read of yours, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the introduction introduced this term psychonaut that really blew my mind when I first read it. Could you explain what a psychonaut is? Well, it's like an equivalent of an astronaut. Mm -hmm. And actually, I have to say, because I'm always into honest attribution, that I thought I coined it, actually, and I think I did because I hadn't read his work. But simultaneously or parallel, a man named Stan Groff also used the term, and I'm sure he didn't read my work. So, and I might have heard him say it or something, as I met him once or twice, but I don't remember that. And then I thought I coined it. So I, I wouldn't argue with him over if he claimed it, but I thought I also claimed it. And so it means a sailor, navigator, as everyone knows, and an astronaut then is a navigator of the stars. And in a way, the astronaut in materialist science, is the ultimate scientific adventurer who is trained in the disciplines, astrophysics and what have you, but then also undergoes a physical, like a yoga, being spun around in G-force machines and doing all kinds of things to be able to go into space, you know, and to do space walking and live in zero gravity and things like that. So in a way, they're the far frontiers men and women of, of material science and so of mental science or inner science as the Indians call it. The voyager internally is a navigator of the psyche. That means psychonaut. And if you read the Book of the Dead, then you note that I make the claim there on behalf of the Buddhist scientists that the reason they have that Book of the Dead is not because of having religious faith whatsoever, but it's because they believe some of them actually developed the ability of lucid dreaming. You can learn to be aware of yourself in a dream as dreaming without leaving the dream and train yourself to do that. And some people naturally can do it. Some people train themselves to do it. A little difficult, but not that difficult. Well, the psychonautic people, yogis, they believe that they train themselves to remain aware during the dying process and then the after-death mental continuum process where although there is a phase in that process where you go completely unconscious, like falling asleep, and then the subsequent stages are like being in a dream. But the difference of that dream is that you're no longer associated with the old physical body. You're doing it outside of that physical body. Even in a dream, you have a subtle or virtual physical body in which your imagination controls the environment in the dream, which is what makes a dream so interesting to be lucid about, because you're you building the Eiffel Tower that you go in in a dream 
out of your imagination and your knowledge previously of having seen an Eiffel Tower or a picture of it. And so similarly, in the between stage, you rebuild a different environment based on your past experiences in your previous life. But in a way, you build it. So they lucidly died, in other words, and they lucidly went through the between state, which is, you know, Tibetans call it bardo. They then know through the process of finding a womb, if they're going to be human or whatever it is they're going to do, or actually, if they have really developed themselves as yogins, Yogi means yoking your own body and experience to your theory. So it means like a scientist, actually, where you yoke yourself, like a yoking an ox, it's the same word, Indo-European word. You yoke your being to what you believe, and you experiment and investigate it by becoming it. That's what yogi really means. So you try to yoke yourself, finally, to reality itself. You try to yoke yourself to that experientially. So in that sense, also... Anybody who's a real yogi in this way, they are their own lab all the time. So that's a psychonaut anyway. And therefore, they claim that these are the reports of those who have chronicled those dimensions. A huge difference between them and Freudian thing is that they believe the purpose of a psychonaut was to investigate their own unconscious and make it more conscious. And that the goal was to have no unconscious drives, actually, to be able to be aware of the mechanisms that drive you and create impulse and create instinct even and habit and then really learn to control yourself in your relative experience. And that's sort of the goal of their psychology because they felt you take your unconscious with you at death and therefore you don't want to be steered into future existences by unconscious impulse that would lead you into a negative rebirth of some kind where you would be massively unhappy and maybe massively lesser able to analyze and investigate your own wiring and your own structures than you can as a human. Mm-hmm. And that would be a massive disaster, actually evolutionary disaster, because they believe they have discovered that we all are evolving as individuals, not just as mindless gene-carrying member of a species. Those are all scientific claims, in other words. And they don't have to be blindly and dogmatically accepted. They should be skeptically listened to and investigated and evidence looked at and etc. And then people might be surprised if they took them seriously in that way. Like modern secular humanists would have disagreed with the idea that there was an omnipotent absolute creator controlling the whole thing. But that didn't mean there aren't some kind of powerful beings of other types, even demonic ones, angelic types, or even what you might call deities. This meeting of the inner and outer scientists is looking back into this area that secular humanists consider just the area of religious belief, dogmatic, blind faith, belief, and superstition. But looking back at it as if it were making some potentially verifiable and explorable claims, that's a key thing. This meditation on the death process, His Holiness says he practices this six times a day, as do many other practitioners. Could you talk about why that's important and also how you became convinced that this isn't just an exercise, but a depiction of what actually happens to us when we die. Right. Well, when His Holiness is meditating on the death process, what he's talking about there is meditating on the dissolution process up to losing consciousness. And that's the eight stages that you saw if you read the Book of the Dead, dissolving out of the coarse body and the coarse senses, and even the coarse mentality that coordinates 
and unifies the inputs of the four senses, sort of dealing with the brain. That's what he's meditating on. The way you meditate, and he doesn't claim that he does that six times a day, but I think he may also do that, although I don't really know, because I'm not that advanced. But meditating on the death process would also mean doing what they call between-state yoga or dream yoga. And these are where you have to develop lucid dreaming and then use the lucid dreaming to learn more about your own mind and how it reacts to different things and your unconscious content of your mind. And then between state is more advanced a little bit than that, where you visualize almost as if you were dying and leaving your body and then how you relate to it and then actually merging back into your body. That's a very advanced kind of thing. And they say that when such yogis can do that, that their normal respiration ceases for a period of time. They go into what I believe we call a cataleptic trance, where they have no coarse respiration, but somehow they are getting oxygen. And I guess the heart is still beating. I don't know, because as I said, I didn't attain it. And I wasn't sitting around holding the pulse of anybody who did while they were doing it. There's very structured descriptions of the practices that enables one to learn this, although it's extremely advanced. And because also dangerous, because you could not be able to get back into your body. Actually, they say if you get to where you could actually consciously remove your consciousness from the body temporarily in a meditative way, and then practice between stage rehearsals, let's say, the only reason you wouldn't get back in the body is because you would be much happier out of it. <laughs> so that can be taken as the most extravagant, blind faith, superstitious nonsense. Or if people are willing to try to think a little bit in a new way, mm. it would be very provocative to think that people might be behaving like that. <laughs> so he doesn't do that six times a day because he's too busy. He, he himself is the first to say he has so many bureaucratic duties and he's trying to help speak up for the Tibetan people. And he's like trying to like do his four, four aims of life. And so he, he hasn't had time to do those advanced things. Or he might even say he would not be able to at this point in his life. He's very simple, humble, non-pretentious. He has tremendous identity resilience, which is a great goal where you don't always have to act like you're the high psychopomp. Just be normal. You know what I mean? Like an ordinary person. And then sometimes you can be very special. I think one of the fears I had and some people have with Buddhism is that somehow you lose your personality the more you get into it. And I remember hearing you once say that the Dalai Lama proves you can have no ego, but still a big personality. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But not only that, you don't lose your personality anyway. But what would you do is you lose being stuck in a fixated identity personality where you think you only have this and that kind of personality. And so you begin to take responsibility for shaping your personality and actually improving it a little bit, actually all the time. And then they're at the psychonaut level, they have extreme, extreme, amazing modalities. That's what Tantra is, you know, the modalities of reshaping your sort of self-structuring because a personality is a relational thing. You develop it because of relating to your parents and your education and your language and your culture and blah, blah, blah. And then when you move to different sectors of your own age or your own professions or your own circumstances, it changes. And as you become more conscious of that, you decide what input to take and what input not to take. And you mm -hmm. don't watch too many horror movies and Rambo movies so you won't go out and get in bar fights, which will shape your personality. I mean, so that's a shaping right then of people's behavior. You know?
yeah. so powerful in doing so. And we, we can see what Fox News has been doing the last four years. I should say 40 years. Yeah, even at a very conventional level, whatever we put into our mind shapes its evolution. Exactly. So the Buddhist thing is very sophisticated psychology learning about as the more you loosen the rigidity of your sense of identity and the more resilient you become in different contexts and circumstances, and then the more creative you can be about cultivating your behavior and awareness and sort of being conscious of your body language, of your subliminal prejudices and so forth. It's a mastery. You know, the whole anti-racist thing, the techniques of the Buddhist habit, identity, identity formation and reformation is unparalleledly useful. Eventually, I'm sure it will be integrated in modern psychology and used really well. How do you see that specifically, those teachings as applied to our current challenges with Black Lives Matter and racial justice and so on? Well, they're important, you know, but not just necessarily meditating. I'm not a person who markets meditation as a panacea, but if you take it as being more self-aware, making it a part of education, not in any kind of religious context whatsoever, but in the context of a skill of being more introspective and being aware of how your reactions occur and the mechanisms underlying those reactions, uh, the human being has every capability of messing with their own wiring. You know, the whole thing, from the Buddhist biological point of view, the virtue of being a human is that we're not that hardwired at all. And as you know, the perfectly nice guy who behaves when grandma scolds him can be trained at Paris Island to become a vicious killer. And if one of his buddies gets shot in a village in Afghanistan, he'll mow down a whole village full of grandmothers mm. by being then unfeeling and unresponsive to what they're looking at. You know, And so we know that people can be rewired to be vicious, and we're very weak on the idea of rewiring oneself to be gentle mm. and be friendly and being open-minded. But in fact, that's what we do. And the best of our modern liberating and humanistic education which is being sadly neglected for STEM education. But anyway, because of this idea that everybody has to get a job and be productive all the time, meanwhile, we're totally overproductive all of us. But in other words, we're touching on that, but we haven't taken it to the point where we really teach people to, for example, develop better one-pointed concentration as part of their BA or high school degree and develop better critical analytic way of looking at things and more introspective things about themselves emotionally and culturally. We abdicate that responsibility as educators because of our fear of religion, because of the fact that materialism has the natural science thing has become the religion of our education system. And they are like the high priests and they babble some mathematics and pretend they know everything and they don't actually. And they're simplistic in some special ways especially about denying that they have a consciousness. It's especially simplistic. And so we'll come back to it, though, I'm sure. It just takes time, you know. And in a way, the materialism was a wonderful thing from the 17th century to get us away from the horrible thought conformity of the Inquisition and the church and the, and the terror about hell and blah, blah, blah. But nevertheless, making nothingness the ultimate destination for everybody to not be scared is way too simplistic and irrational. Okay, I want to ask you about nothingness, because I've heard you frequently refute this modern view that we came from nothing, and then we die, we go back to nothing. Could you talk a little bit about your view on the modern world's relationship to nothing? It's simply irrational. It's ridiculous. It shows that someone who says something like that 
has no notion of what they're saying. Every physicist or psychologist or biologist should absolutely, as a pre-science, at least undergraduate, if not earlier, should be trained in logic and philosophy to learn about paradigms and how they establish their theories and hypotheses and then look for evidence and so forth and how they interpret what they experience. They really should. The idea that they're just going in to measure some stuff is ridiculous. Rather, it's interesting in that they do measure a lot of interesting stuff, but it lim limits them from really inventing and creating and seeing more deeply something new, like breakthrough types of discoveries, because they're just locked into the dogma that it's just a matter of objective measurement, and that's naive, actually. So it's a kind of naive realism from a critical philosophical point of view. So the idea that nothing is something is simply irrational. In order to be a source of something, it has to be something. And nothing is a word that has no referent in a sense. It's just a negation, and it doesn't reach any referent because it means something that isn't there. There's no there there. So there's no way to come from it, and there's no way to go into it, actually. And note that they will realize that easily with their thermodynamic law. There's a certain energy, and it's never destroyed, and it only transforms. It, it can just be diffused by entropy, but it never becomes nothing. And they can sort of see the rush, the reasoning behind once there's energy, it will always be energy in different forms. And as far as where it first begins, beginning less and less becomes more and more mandatory once they get past the naivete of there was just one big bang where it big banged out of nothing. <laughs> you know, the idea of a black hole as ultimate density is still not nothing, you know, mm -hmm. and it can't ever be nothing, which is why then some people theorize maybe pulsar comes exploding out of it at some point, <laughs> which would be logical, actually. And uh, so to hold in your mind the very powerful image that materialists, you know, philosophical materialists have that a dark space awaits them when the brain stops functioning and they lose consciousness. And then whatever continuity was in them before becomes nothing. And that fits very much with their daily experience of falling asleep and becoming mm -hmm. unconscious in a dark room. And so they think that's the ultimate thing, that that'll happen to them. But the point is, when you fall asleep, you don't become nothing. You're just unconscious and you're still there. And actually, strangely, you feel rested in the morning and you didn't get that new energy that renewed your cells in some way and made your, your mitochondria or whatever it does from nothing because nothing has nothing to give you. So there must <laughs> be an underlying plane of energy, a field of energy, so it's not nothing. And therefore, some idea of a final nothing is simply an irrational idea. But on the other hand, be a skeptic and try to prove the existence of nothing. Go for it. Why not? But it, you'll find it's a really hard sell if people are thinking rationally. Meanwhile, many people, it's like heaven. Then the other thing they do, dogmatic materialists, is they will convince themselves that they're having so much fun running around in their Chevrolets or Teslas or whatever it is, and whatever with their girlfriends or spouses or boyfriends or whatever it might be, that they're really brave to think of never waking up. And yet that's a mature thing and they're not being superstitious and they're being like modern and go for broke and like, okay, I'm, I've agreed to be nothing. And pretend that's a bravery. But meanwhile, hmm. the slightest dentist drill on one tooth makes them want to be unconscious 
or 16 hours of hard work makes them pass out. So they really welcome being unconscious. Actually, it doesn't take courage. It's a joy to be unconscious when you're worn out or in pain. So they trick themselves into acting like it's, a, it's an act of bravery to be nothing. Meanwhile, yeah. we're nothing every night as far as being unconscious goes. And uh, every time we go under anesthesia in any kind of professional setting. So the point is, the default is that there's continuity in everything in nature. So we can point to a zillion examples of continuity. And even entropy must end up being trapped by a black hole. One little tiny fragmentary piece of energy will be trapped somewhere and then it'll explode. So it'll be concentrated again, in other words. Also, by the way, the Bardo and Book of the Dead, Indian and Tibetan Buddhist science, it doesn't mean that that's the final description of the death and rebirth process. They mm -hmm. say that once there's no ultimate description of relative realities, and once all relative realities are empty of any ultimate fixed essence in any one of the parts of the relativity, then all theories about or descriptions of relative realities are just that, only relative. And they may be valid and useful contextually in context, but in other contexts, they won't be so useful. So they're always awaiting further revision, experiential revision in navigating through life. And therefore, there's no such thing as a fixed dogma except that, which is a negation that there's no such thing as a fixed dogma, which should be Karl Popper's scientific principle as well. You know, all theories are hypothetical, awaiting falsification by further experience. If you take experiment to mean the results of experience, which I do. So that's the thing, you know. It took me a long time to realize because what you do when you meet your natural science friend, and then you're a little bit Buddhist scholar or something from some weird thing called a religion department on a campus, which really it shouldn't even be there, but they sort of are. And so then they say, well, what evidence do you have about that former future life stuff? And then you say, well, there's a lot of people who remember previous lives and this. And then you, know, you start in a thing and then, ah, and it all gets dismissed. And, and then it took me 40 years to decide to say, excuse me, but that's before even we discuss that matter. What evidence do you have that something can become nothing? Give me some evidence on that. And then I like to tease them. Who got the Nobel Prize for discovering nothing? Which guy? You know? <laughs> right. And then they get irritated. Yeah, it's such a convincing argument. You know, we only have evidence for something. We're surrounded by something. We have no nothing detector yet. So imagine to, to make one of the most important predictions of an individual's life, which is what should I prepare for and expect after death based on something that has no evidence and never will in principle, you know, and in a way, you could say it's the most blind form of blind faith you can ask for. Because even if, you know, Moses sees a bush burning that tells him I'm some sort of a big shot, go to go talk to Pharaoh or something. Well, at least he's talking to a bush, you know, and then maybe he misinterprets it as thinking it's, it's omnipotent and he has to do what it says and whatever. He can't talk back, whatever, which the rabbis don't do, actually. They talk back plenty. I noticed. So I studied that. But point is. At least they have something to refer to. But once you say nothing, it's ultimate reality, really. You're saying the ultimate reality of everything is nothing. Well, and then they think it's, it's modernity to say there's no purpose to life. It's meaningless. It's an accident. Here we are, a random mutation. Who knows? It's just completely irresponsible, at least to great irresponsibility, actually, in my, in my view. 
So nihilism is one huge delusion. The other is egotism and self-centeredness. And I really like egotism. Yeah. Smart egotism is good. Yeah. In other words, in the sense, you know, one of the things that the Buddhists would say, they do say, although they tend because the Westerner goes, oh, ego, ego. So they go ego, ego. But the point is, it takes a very strong ego to decide I'm going to get control of myself. I'm going to understand myself. I'm going to understand the world. Next week, we'll continue our riveting conversation with Professor Thurman, and you'll get to find out what is a healthy kind of ego, how you can be a Buddhist without belief, and Dr. Thurman's powerful vision of what enlightenment and nirvana might feel like to someone like us. Our podcast is a nonprofit organization, and we offer all our episodes and classes free and ad-free. If you've benefited from this and other episodes, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to give cash, credit, Bitcoin, and Ethereum on our webpage at skepticspath.org. If you're on an Apple device, we'd also be grateful if you took a moment right now to review us in your podcast app. The reviews help new people discover our podcast, which is free for all and free from ads. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn where we can be found under the name Skeptic's Path. We also have a private meditation discussion group that you can find a link to on our website. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Butler for producing this special episode and conceiving and creating our interview series. Have a wonderful rest of your day.